Part 10 of John Bull's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 Wine versus Alcohol. Driving home, I was musing on the case of my two old friends rooting out their vineyards, and I was sorry for them. After a long life of hard work, just when age came on, and their diminishing strength required the gentle stimulant that kind providence has prepared for that necessity, they were to deprive themselves of the gifts, simply because some people abuse it and are guilty of excess. I thought of Italy, of the country farms where you find on the table of the peasant the large pot of wine, standing alongside the basin full of boiled lupini, a poor fare, yet one which keeps men wiry and strong. But these wines are thin and almost acid, they cannot lead to excesses. Let the Australian farmer gather his grapes early to make alimentary wine for his own use. He will not have alcoholism to fear, and will not feel constrained to give up on that account his share of the bounty of nature. Wine, if not absolutely necessary to children and to old men, is at least most beneficial to them. British people are so accustomed to confound the natural alcohol which is found in the wine with the alcohol obtained by the fermentation of saccharine substances of all sorts, that British mothers will shrink in horror at being told to give wine to children. But in wine countries, both for the benefit of their health and to prepare them to be sober men, children are early accustomed to the use of wine, diluted with water, according to their age. Just a mild tonic and appetite-giving draught, as we said before, like chickweed to the birds. In continental families it is given to children of a very tender age. When the same little fellows are eight or ten, the taste of mere wine is generally displeasing to them. They ask oftener for more water in their wine than for more wine in their water. When they grow to be men, they feel when it is good and enough for them, and never pass the limit. Beside the moral force of being sober, they possess a constitution physically trained and shaped for soberness. Sobriety to them is a necessity. If the wine be an antidote to strong alcohol, is it not also a cure for its bad effects? The children of a drunkard are said to be sometimes heirs to his disorder. If they be reared as total abstainers, the propensity to the vice may only be suspended. They may succumb at the first temptation. Diluted wine from their cradle, pure wholesome wine later on, would perhaps cure the germs of the disease. One day in Switzerland I was upbraiding a countryman addicted to drinking, who had reduced his family from comfort to misery. I gave him as an example another farmer, close to him, sober and prosperous himself and his stalwart sons. Ah, he said, no wonder that Pite is sober, they always had wine at home. My father was too much of a miser, I got mine à l'auberge, at the public house. I never forgot the sad tones of that man's answer. On my return home from the Redlands, I took up a little volume of lectures given in Turin. The legend of the wine, the poets of the wine, its physiologic effects. Here is the peroration of one of them under the title, Wine is Health. 
Without passion and without artifice, I have exposed the benefits and the evils brought upon us by alcohol. The misery of the latter surpasses by far the advantages of the former. Alcoholism is a public calamity which increases every day, and which prudent governments begin to try to check. Who does not remember its influence during the Commune in Paris? Who can not recognise that influence in the profound uneasiness which torments today the low grades of society? Reformers may talk about the means of repression. The most radical one would be to banish alcohol from daily use, and to this the temperance societies aspire. But let us tell them at once that to attempt it is a utopian enterprise. Men at all times, in every country and state of civilization, will want some of these substances, which the illustrious Professor Mantegazza calls nervine elements, and can be obtained under various forms. Take cocoa or coffee, hashish or opium, tea or tobacco, and tell me which of those, as to cost, as to facility of obtaining it, above all as to its effects, can compete with alcohol. No doubt if man had not been expelled from paradise and was still living in a region of peace and love, he could do without any nervine aliment. But in our society, in which we can only advance over the corpses of the fallen, in which almost every day brings new deceptions and sorrows, where the ideal vanishes and the material hardens and dominates, who dares to pronounce anathema upon the nectar, which brings with it solace and sharpens our courage and intelligence for constant conflict. One thing we can and must do with great hopes of success, opposed to the invasion of strong liquids, sound wines sold at slow prices, substitutes for the alcohol of fiery liquors, a concentrated and poisonous alcohol, the temperate natural alcohol of the wine more suitable to our necessities, and which we can refrain from abusing. Others may doubt as to the result, but not we who were born in a land where the vine expands its treasures, amidst a people whose moderation is one of their leading virtues. Chapter 27. Work is Health. Two miles away from Burgi's farm, the largest school of the district occupies the top of one of the red hills. Seventy-six children are inscribed on the roll. Four more schools, distant from each other from six to eight miles, are frequented by a hundred and fifty more children. Prosperous farms succeed one another. In the largest, that of John Hunter, the raspberry plantation covers ten acres of ground, as much as a man can well manage to work, for the picking of the fruit requires a great many hands, and if not collected at the proper time, the crop is lost. The selections continue uninterrupted up to the Yarra, eight miles distance, and thence alongside the river for some fifty miles more. Beyond this, the land remains open for newcomers. I met once in our railway train a man of some thirty years of age, a free selector on these banks of the Yarra. We entered into conversation, and his case may be interesting for some people. He was a principal clerk in a Melbourne firm, and had a young Australian wife. They had some means of their own, and lived in one of the suburbs, he starting every morning for his office in town, she passing her long monotonous days in their little cottage, 
to wait for his return in the evening. They had no children. The wife was delicate. You only have one chance of saving her life, said the doctor to him after one of her periodical illnesses. Go to the country and rough it there, both of you. He started the next day for the bush and went on till he came to some unoccupied land. He selected 40 acres on the Yarra and 280 acres more on the hills a little distance away. They built close to the river, and giving up altogether town life, they settled there, roughing it indeed, improving their land, gardening and planting. They established a poultry farm. Health came back to his wife. When I met him, he was going to arrange in town for the disposal of their chickens and also he told me with a radiant expression to get a nurse for their firstborn. Chapter 28. In Gippsland The cultivation of the vine being not generally familiar to British people, it will readily explain, I hope, why, in speaking of Australian vineyards, mention is made more frequently of foreigners than of Englishmen. Many Australians will be much surprised to be told that Gippsland is a country propitious to the growing of grapes. Foreigners have demonstrated this quite recently. Gippsland, the Caledonia Australis, as Angus Macmillan, his discoverer, first called it, includes 13,898 square miles, nearly 9 millions of acres. Much of it, to the north and east particularly, is unavailable for agricultural or pastoral purposes, from its rugged and mountainous character. But there are large tracts of grazing and arable country, rich deposits of alluvial soil predominating in some parts, rendering large returns for the labour of cultivation. Owing, however, to heavy timber, gum and iron bark that grow on it, its clearing is attended with considerable expense. Gippsland is a country of colossal mountains, of magnificent streams and fertile plains, and combines in its varied landscapes all that is attractive to the artist and the traveller. The climate and the soil are well fitted for the growth of oranges, hops, tobacco and opium. The vine is not mentioned in this quotation. Curiously enough, an erroneous idea prevails in Australia, and even to this day in Gippsland itself, that it cannot prosper in that province. And yet, in the very rugged and mountainous lands mentioned above, the grape will some day flourish and be the principal means of reclaiming them when the richer areas will have been all taken up. Some sixteen years ago, a countryman of mine came to St Hubert's with a letter of introduction. He had been a professor in a large school in Nijni Novgorod and having left Russia for France, had been so struck by the Australian exhibits at the Paris Exhibition of 1871 that without more ado he started for England and took ship from thence for Melbourne. He came to me for advice. From his being a native of the canton de Vaux, where tobacco is much cultivated, he was somewhat familiar with its treatment. He had heard of free selection, that tobacco was successfully grown in Gippsland, and he had resolved to go there and to enter into that industry. He was without means, thin and pale, and unaccustomed to manual labour, and looking rather unable to undertake much of it. I strongly dissuaded him. I thought that it would be safer for him to stick to his pedagogic career and to give private lessons in Melbourne. 
he left me hesitating as to whether he would follow my advice. A few days afterwards, he wrote that he had found a mate to go into farming, and as his purse had been emptied by the voyage, he asked me for a temporary advance. I reiterated my advice, and instead of the sum mentioned, sent him a smaller cheque, telling him to go to the best tailor to exchange his continental outfit for an English-looking suit, enclosing, at the same time, letters of recommendation for him to two of my friends, professors at the Melbourne University. By return of post, I got my cheque and my letters back. He wrote, thanking me, but said that he had no wish to lead in Australia the existence he had been tired of in Russia, that he wanted country life, and was off to Gippsland to get it. For fifteen years I did not hear of him. I thought he had left Victoria. About eleven months ago, during our vintage, and as I was amongst my presses, a stout, brown-faced, long-bearded man came in with a jovial face. Ah, Mr. C., comment vous portez-vous? he said, extending cheerfully a horny hand. Very well, thank you, I answered. But pray, where did we meet before? What, you don't know me? Don't you recollect Louis Willemin of Courgevaux? Surely you are not Willemin. Yes, I am. Look at me well. Don't you remember how you wanted me to remain in the schoolmastering trade and sent me a cheque to get fine clothes? Now I am a landed proprietor. I have a good farm and a vineyard. I have a wife and four children. I am stout, strong and happy. And so he looked, from head to foot, a more complete change I had never seen. He was, in every way, another man. When Willemin had made up his mind to go up country fifteen years before, he had got from a French teacher in Melbourne a letter for the father of one of his pupils, a farmer in Gippsland. To him he went, close to Briagalong, a fertile plain at the foot of the mountains described as unavailable for agricultural or pastoral purposes. Men living far inland welcome any newcomer. Population is the desideratum for all. At Briagalong, Willemin was cordially received. The furthest selector showed him a piece of land, which included yet a few acres of the alluvial flat alongside the village creek. He selected 40 acres, and soon after, 140 more on the slope of the mountain forest. In far away new settlements, selectors tender assistance to each other. The further they are from populous townships, the closer the friendly intercourse between them. Very little hard cash is to be found at first in these remote localities. If a man gets a day or a week's help from a friend, he returns it to him in the same way. Willemin found that assistance at the hands of his neighbours. Perhaps because of his being a foreigner and new to hard work, they were all kind to him. He told them of vines, a cultivation with which they were not familiar, but which could be a new unit to add to the elements of their common prosperity. Close to the creek, by himself, he started with his tobacco. Above, on the slope of the forest, he grubbed slowly, one rod after another of ground, planting vines and fruit trees. At that time, tobacco growing was very profitable. That cultivation soon brought him returns. He increased it, and by degrees employed labour. In the fourth year, he built a little wooden house on the top of which he had a small cigar factory. 
Then he married a prudent wife. Order, system, economy entered his house. Encouraged by the growth of his first vines, by the excellent fruits they bore, Willemin planted a regular vineyard, about three acres in extent, but he made no wine yet. Grapes were so rare in Sale and other townships of his district that all he could produce was more profitably sold as fruit. Gippsland, as I said just now, has been hitherto considered as unfit for the cultivation of the vine. At the time I write, we are on the eve of the Australian vintage. The white grapes are transparent, the dark ones already clothed in velvety blue. To be able to report, de visu, on the adaptability of the soil and climate of Gippsland and of the southern part of Victoria to viticulture, I took a few days ago the train to sail, and thence went to visit Willemin's vineyard. A glance at a recent map showing the lines of railways already established in Victoria, those in course of construction and those sanctioned by the Parliament in 1884, will give a vivid idea of the advance of the colony. A journey from Melbourne to Sale, the capital of Gippsland, enables one to discern prophetically what it will be twenty years hence, when the clearing of the forest, the draining of the swamps, the transformation of scores of thousands of acres of quagmires, composed of the richest black soil, formerly called glue pots, into plains of wheat, fields of potatoes and clover pastures, will have peopled these solitudes of yesterday with some hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. At the present moment, the activity there is already wonderful. Life is full of incidents, that of communities as well as that of individuals. A special one contributes to the sudden development. Melbourne is paving its streets with wood, with square blocks of red gum which lasts for ages. Millions of these blocks are wanted, and as the wealthy town increases, the mighty forest is laid low in order to supply its wants. Instead of an unsystematic and wasteful demolition of the timber, tramways are constructed to bring it from the movable sawmills to the stations on the permanent line. Teams of horses, of large-framed bullocks and a crowd of hardy workmen attest that it is a profitable occupation. If it's cost in some instances as much as £20 sterling per acre and even more to clear the trees off these lands, the fee simple of which costs the selector only one shilling per year for 20 years, the wood itself, in a great many cases, defrays the entire expense, leaving a balance to the owners. The trees grow so closely together in that region that in some parts they cannot be more than eight feet apart from centre to centre. At a distance, the forest looks like a hop garden in which the bare poles have been left standing. Only here the poles are 200 feet in height, with scanty foliage above, and patches of bright fern trees underneath. Their feet are hidden in a mass of rank grasses and dense underwood. Many acres of that land must carry over 600 trees to the acre, out of which perhaps 50 are worth sawing into timber, to meet the ever-increasing demand of the building trade of Melbourne, or to provide material for the paving of its streets. No wonder that the soil should produce such noble forests, for, where it is cultivated, it yields as much as twenty tons of potatoes to the acre, and crops of all kinds of fabulous abundance. 
No wonder, with such returns, the inhabitants are getting rich. It is interesting to pass through the new settlements by the evening train. Each centre has its station, surrounded by from 50 to 100 more houses. The platforms are the lounging promenades of the settlers. At the time the train arrives, they are crowded with people, looking for friends passing up or down. It is a busy scene, every one of the spectators looks good-humoured and prosperous, and all appear to be in the prime of life. A smart young fellow with an open countenance, square-shouldered, erect, moving with that precision and ease which a soldier's training gives to a man, travelled with me for some distance. He was an instructor in the local forces which are being formed all over Victoria. At every other station, other young men came to the door of our carriage, shaking hands with him and fixing days for their drills. "'How many will you be?' he asked at every place. Invariably the answer was a number over fifteen. Besides the entrain of the contrast of this military organisation in the midst of the primitive wilds, it conveyed a special feeling of order and conservatism. The railway to sail, 128 miles in length, is at present the only artery through this superb forest, but another line will be shortly opened, south of the present one. In a year or two, every part of that country, down to the sea, will be within 20 miles of a railroad. Already, they say, the whole of it is taken up, and future settlers must go the north of the rich alluvial region, to the slopes where the vine, the olive, the lemon and the orange will find a congenial habitat. Chapter 29. Briagalong Briagalong, 22 miles from Sale, is a small township at the end of a long plain of extensive farms. Beyond it, the great dividing ranges soft in forms, wavy, undulating, and calling back to memory the horizons in Claude's and Poussin's pictures, seem to extend for hundreds of miles. At the end of the village, passing through fields of hops and alongside large oast houses, I arrive at Wilhelmine's cottage, surrounded, as are all Australian country homes, with fruit trees of all kinds. After a cordial greeting from him and his good wife, and an introduction to their little children, we went straight to his vines. His selection is on the border of the forest. His vineyard occupies a spur which runs down from the hills, partly encircled by a mountainous torrent. The sides of the ravine, torn away by the water in winter, show the formation of the soil, clay and gravel with a superstratum of sandy loam, just what the vines require. His were covered with beautiful fruit, more advanced there in Gippsland than with us in the valley of the Yarra at the same date. The abundance of the grapes, the size of the bunches, the quality of the fruit, exceeded all I had anticipated. Be it sufficient to say that he had exhibited the previous year at the agricultural show at sale several bunches of grapes weighing from four to five pounds each. His oldest vines, planted fourteen years ago, trained on wire trellises six feet high, were in full vigour. His vineyard, composed of plants from one to four years of age, the former with shoots ten feet long, the latter covered with bunches, was a conclusive proof of the adaptability of the country for the growth of grapes. 
It must have been that no proper care was taken of the few vines which were planted here and there in Gippsland at various times. Otherwise the mistaken idea that they cannot succeed in that province would not have existed so long. The spell is broken now. First the fine bunches placed on the market, next the fact that those who grow them make money out of them, will soon cause the vine to be planted in Gippsland as in other parts of the colony. The high lands of the region are certain to produce perfect wines, about 25% of strength, well adapted for cold climates, yet wines of ordinary consumption to be drunk at meal times. Devin de table. Briagalong is the future terminus of a railway, which will be opened in another year. Willemin's vineyard is only two miles from the station, and his selection is the furthest taken up. Beyond him the land belongs to the crown and remains open for newcomers. The domain of the state extends hence for some eighty miles in the centre of Victoria to the settlements on the other side of the dividing ranges, to Ainsworth, Mansfield, Brights and other places. A mile away from Willemin's farm we went to see two young selectors, also close to the border of the forest but inside it. They were brothers, both bachelors, established on the high bank of the same mountain creek, on a piece of ground of eighty acres, which they had taken up four years ago. One of them had worked for us at St. Hubert's. My visit was therefore a duty. The amount of labour done by these two boys was surprising. By themselves they had cleared of the big trees over ten acres of land. The greater portion of it was under crops of potatoes, of maize and beans and besides, they had rows of fruit trees and vines, showing already straight lines of vigorous foliage. Their little red hut, all built of bark, looking like a Nuremberg toy, was lost in a mass of luxuriant vegetation. Nurseries for future plantations, vegetables of all kinds, melons, pumpkins and tomatoes trained on wire. A footpath led to a deep pool of clear water below, surrounded by the white gravel of the dried-up torrent, their morning tub shining like polished steel. All around this open patch of ground, un clairière dans la forêt, stood the big tall red gum and stringy bark trees, a fit solitude for a hermit tired of the battle of life, or for one resolved to avoid it, but not a wilderness. Some eighteen months ago, the youngest of them had come into a bequest of a hundred pounds or so, their fruit trees and vines did not show much then, and similarly, the love of his selection was not deeply rooted in him yet. He decided upon returning to his native land, and intended doing so for good. He remained not long away, however. He had arrived in winter. The cold, the crowded life, the narrow ways, everything made him regret his bright clairière in the Australian forest. After five weeks passed with his friends, he started again, and six months after he had left it, he was back to his selection. His case is an illustration of the attractiveness of this independent life. Will you come again and give us a hand during the vintage? I asked him. No, thank you, he answered. You see, I have much to attend to here, and if I want a few pounds, I can always get them out of our produce. The rich soil of the Briagalong Flats is well adapted to the culture of hops. 
A sudden rise in the price of Australian hops, consequent upon the failure of the crop in Europe in 1882, filled for a while the coffers of Victorian growers, but resulted for them in a disaster. In 1883, they received up to four shillings per pound, three times more than they used to get before, and speculators, inexperienced men, planted on all sides. In three years, the extent of land under that cultivation in Victoria increased tenfold. Hops supplied to the English market by unskilled producers soon gave a bad name to the colonial article. All growers suffered alike. The crisis which resulted from this overproduction is felt just now by them, and hops are at a discount. On both sides of a narrow field, still cultivated, I saw the other day, piled up like huge muskets, two long rows of stacks of poles which had been prepared for an extension of plantation, now given up. Blackened by the action of the weather, they formed a striking contrast with the green of the remaining hops in the centre the yellow of the withered grass of the plain, and the dominant bright blue of the Australian landscape. "'What a splendid effect!' I said to Willamin as we passed by. "'Alas!' he answered, "'each of these stacks of idle poles represents a loss of twenty-five pounds to our district.' All things mend. Those who counted upon so much and found so very little gave it up disheartened. The veteran growers like my kind Ciceroni among these fields, Mr. Landy, are preparing for better days. Quality improves steadily, and with the production reduced to reasonable limits, hop-growing will again be profitable to them. End of part 10